Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one went in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets or ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going, going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her 
in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that we, you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Well, good morning. Uh, someone seems to have stolen my sermon. Oh. Oh. oh, panic over. Well, good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the members here at Emmanuel Epsom, and it's good to see you. There's one or two faces that I don't recognise, so it's really nice to see you. Uh, today, as you can tell, we're looking at the book of Joshua. Now, Joshua was meant to be my name. Whilst I was brewing in my mum's tummy, uh, they shared this suggestion with my grandparents, and they got some negative feedback. Why would you want to call a kid Joshua, or something to that effect? What can I say? My name is Daniel, so obviously it did put them off. Four years later, my younger brother is born. His name is Joshua. <laughs> Maybe they waited until he was actually born to tell people the name because it's harder for polite people such as ourselves to criticise a name once it's already been given. In the long run, I am grateful because I don't think I could have handled being called Joshy Babe by my nan. So, why have I told you this? If you knew about this when Josh was born, you'd be able to think, oh, isn't that good for my mum and dad? It's a name they really like. They've liked that name for some time. It's to show you that a little bit of history helps with our understanding of a situation. Our series is called Drawing Near to God, and as we look at Joshua, I thought it would be good to recap a little bit of Israel's history. So if we go back to Genesis 12, out of nowhere, God spoke to Abraham. He made him some promises, a great, uh, a great land, a great nation, and a great blessing. By chapter 21, Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac, who is the father to Jacob, who is the father to Joseph. By Genesis 41, that family ended up in Egypt, and Joseph was number two in the land, second only to Pharaoh. Hundreds of years went past, and we're now in Exodus 1. The Israelites were some number at this point, but they were subject to slavery in Egypt. Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and sends him back into Egypt, and God rescues the people, and they head for the promised land. They see the seas literally part as God leads them to safety. Uh, in Numbers chapter 13, we see the Lord tell Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land to explore. And one of those spies was Joshua. But by verse 28 of that chapter, all except Joshua and Caleb came back spreading bad reports. And they were saying, these people are powerful. These cities are fortified and large. The people are big and we are just like grasshoppers in comparison to them. And we hear the people of Israel say a terrible thing. If only we had died in Egypt. Only Joshua and Caleb said, no, with God we can surely do it. Do not rebel against the Lord. 
The people didn't like hearing that and they contemplated stoning them. Moses pleaded with God to forgive the people, which God did do. But he said because of that, this generation would not enter the promised land. So they lived in the desert, eating bread that fell from heaven. And as time passes, that era died out. By the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has also died and Joshua is his successor. So if we're in Joshua chapter 1, God leads the people back towards the promised land. In chapter 3, they pass through the Jordan River in the same way as with the Red Sea, with the water retreating. God recommits the pe- uh, Joshua recommits the people to God, and in verse 11 of chapter 5, they enjoy the fruit of the land for the first time, and the bread from heaven ceases. And here we are, where we are now, chapter 5, verse 13, near Jericho. And we've heard from the reading, a man appears with a drawn sword who identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. That's in verse 13. And Joshua ends up falling on his face and worshipping because this person is God. How do we know that? I mean, who could this person be? What are the options? A man, an angel, or God? So it can't be a man. Joshua had spent time with Moses Of course he'd have known not to worship a fellow man. What does God say in Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to anything in heaven or earth. It can't be an angel. Not only are angels covered in the anything in heaven or earth clause of that commandment, but if you were to look at the last book in your Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, you would see that John, after... Uh, hearing and seeing things of the future which the angel showed him, he actually went down to worship the angel. And the angel said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God. Do not do that. An angel wouldn't have accepted uh, Joshua's worship. So not only does this person who had appeared accept it, they actually encourage it. They go one step further. Take off your sandals, verse 15. For the place where you're standing is holy. The very same thing which Moses heard from God in the burning bush in Exodus 3. So this is God. He acts like him, accepts worship like him, and Joshua eventually treats him as if he is God, although he doesn't initially. So what does he do? Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? The first thing I'd like to look at is God's response to Joshua. God's response to Joshua. So how does God respond in verse 14? He says, no. It's neither, uh, translated as neither in the NIV, but no is more literal. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. No meaning, I don't accept that question. I don't fit into those boxes. I do not fall into either of those categories. That is the wrong question. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I have now come. So what is going on here? When I was a child, and I'm sure my brother and sister could confirm this also, we as kids could sometimes be rude. A demand could be made. Maybe someone would say to a parent, when are you going to give me my PlayStation controller? I want it now. 
Now, what is the answer to that question? You can either say, yes, here you go, son, or no, you can't have it. Those are the two options. But another, another phrase I can distinctly remember hearing several times from either my mum or dad would be, Daniel, who do you think you are talking to? You see, it doesn't deal with the issue of the PlayStation controller. Uh, it addresses another thing altogether. When I heard that, who do you think you are talking to? I'd realise, oh right, these are my parents. I, I don't get to talk to them like that. You might be aware of the show Undercover Boss. It's on ITV 4 plus 1. Daytime trash. <laughs> the concept is that the CEO uh, of a company will go undercover in disguise and pretend to be a new employee in their company to see how things are on the ground. Um, sometimes they're not that good at the things that they're meant to do, like working in the warehouse and so on. And sometimes a manager will give them a talking to. Phrases like, if you want to make it in this company, you need to get your ideas together. And it's funny to watch because you're thinking, well, actually, mate, he's the one that decides whether you've got the job. He's the one that decides your fate and the fate of the company. That is a little bit like what is going on here. Joshua goes up to God and says, join me and serve me in my army or fight me. And God says, no, pipe down. Who do you think you are talking to? Don't you know who you're talking to? I'm the commander. I am the one in charge. You see, God is king and everything in the cosmos is his already, Joshua included, Jericho included, you and me included. In Genesis 1, God spoke and the world came into existence. John 1, through, all th uh, through him all things were made. There's nothing here that wasn't made by him. Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, he said to Job. Do you realise that if the distance, the 92 million miles between the earth and the sun, was reduced to, the piece of, to a piece of paper, the next nearest star to us would be a stack of paper 70 feet high, and the width of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high, and our galaxy is like dust in the entire universe. Tim Keller says God holds the universe together with his pinky. You don't ask someone like that to be your assistant. Everything that happens is because God permits it to happen, and everything that doesn't happen is because he hasn't permitted it to happen. The very breath that Joshua inhaled in order to ask that question was given to him by God. And Joshua says to God, whose side are you on? Either join me or face me. And God says, no, it doesn't work like that. I am the commander. I am the king of the universe. You should be asking yourself that question. Are you my subject or are you my enemy? The first thing we learn here is that God is king over everything, every part of our lives. Nothing can be kept from him. Nothing isn't subject to his rule. There is a documentary on Netflix where Stephen Fry visits the 50 states in America in his taxi. In it, there's an interesting interview with a Mormon, and he said this, the mission of our church is to bring people in. And we say to them, it might work for you, it might not work for you. 
Do you think there's anything similar going on here between what the Mormon said and what Joshua is initially saying? Aren't they both trying to put conditions onto God to make him their holy helper rather than the king? Help me with this battle, says Joshua, or else we're enemies. This needs to work for me, says the Mormon, otherwise I'm not interested. I think that this sentiment is all over the place. I have friends who are interested in Christianity but say, no way, I'm not going to sleep around. Another says, I don't mind the idea of God, but I don't want to do what he tells me. That's judgmental. Another says, what do you actually get out of it? Perhaps you are here this morning and maybe you're considering Christianity, but there are a couple of things you're not quite willing to sign up for, you're not quite happy with. Now, by all means, absolutely, you must talk about that. Ask questions of God. Ask questions of the Bible. Speak to your friends in the church. But ultimately, God is not customizable, nor is he mute. He is the commander. We might say to God, I'll follow you. I'll follow you if you help me with this issue, with this part of my life. Or to reverse it, we might say, this part of my life is non-negotiable. So you're going to just have to accept it. Otherwise, I'm not going to follow you. And to that, God says, no, that's not how it is. I am the king, the ruler over everything, as the kid song goes. Now, the very same is true of me, and I suspect many here who would call themselves Christians. I'm going to paraphrase how it goes in my head. God, I know what you say about lust, about drink, about money, about anger and selfishness and hospitality, but I'm going to indulge myself anyway. This part of my life, this corner, this thing is mine. I'm not going to ask you what, uh, what's right in case I don't like the answer. And even if it is wrong, I don't want to give it up. You're not king in this part. And you may have heard it before, but it's often the things that aren't bad per se, but good things that gradually make their way up the pecking order uh, to replace God as the ruler in our lives. When a good thing becomes a God thing. Work, children, family, relationships, and ministry even. I recall that when Bobby Warrenberg, the pastor of CEC, left to go back to America. He said that he wanted to stay because his ministry was really important to him. But he went on to say that if he did stay, it was because his ministry had become too important to him. I wonder if he said to God, you need to help me here with this ministry in Chessington. And God said, no, I'm, I'm in charge. And we're talking about Christian ministry. So ask yourself, if you were to be tricked to slowly slip into idolatry, let something, good or bad, become the commander over your life rather than God, what would that be? Joshua here, uh, hears God say no, and how does he respond? For a moment, it uh, brought to my mind Pumbaa in The Lion King, when he realises Simba's the king. He looks up at him, he says, King, your majesty, I grovel at your feet. And he bows and kisses his feet. Verse 14, Joshua hits the deck. He fell on his face in reverence. 
In reverence means in worship. Joshua acts appropriately. It has troubled me this last week or so as I've been riding my motorbike to work alone with my thoughts. When was the last time I heard God speak to me like this? Have I ever? And why not? Either I've got it spot on. God is in his rightful place as the unrivaled king in my life or I'm not actually trying to listen to him. And then the challenge in what Joshua says in the same verse, what message does my Lord have for his servant? When was the last time you can say that you refer to yourself as a servant when you were praying? Not my will but yours. So we've looked at how God responds to Joshua and now the second thing that I'd like to look at is God's instruction to Joshua. So God's instruction to Joshua. God could say anything to Joshua at this point, right? He's in submission and he's ready to listen. So what does God choose to reveal about himself? He tells him to take his sandals off because the place where he's standing is holy. God could talk about any of his attributes. He could talk about his love, his power, his wisdom, his generosity, his mercy. But he chooses holiness. His holiness is what he wants Joshua to understand. So why don't we think about that for a bit? The taking off of the sandals is to do with the fact that they were everyday sandals, Joshua's everyday sandals, rather than sandals devoted only to being near to God. We see this type of thing throughout the Old Testament books of the law. It's about the thing, whatever it is, an object, a person, being devoted to the Lord, to him alone, specially. You may save a bottle of champagne for a, a special occasion. You kill the fattened calf when someone special is coming around for dinner. That's roughly the idea of holy objects, devoted objects that you can find all throughout Exodus and Leviticus. It means being committed to one thing, God above all else. And God says to Joshua, you're in my presence now, and get those bog standard sandals off. Same here as with God and Moses in the burning bush. And if you look at the New Testament letters, Paul basically starts every one calling the recipient holy to all in Rome called to be his holy people, to the church of God in Corinth called to be his holy people, God's holy people in Ephesus, God's holy people in Philippi, and so on and so on. A follower of God is called to be holy, meaning fully and specially committed to him. So if that's what it is for us to be holy, what does it mean that God's holy? It's about him being the superlative, unparalleled and matchless. It's not simply that he is at the top, has every character, scale, uh, character trait scaled to the max, he is the measure by which everything else is compared. He doesn't measure up to some external uh, standard of perfection. He is the standard. It's not that he is the most worthy king who's defeated the competition. He is the king, the only one. He's holy, meaning it is not possible for him to have any rivals. It's not possible for him to have any imperfections. To accept such things would only diminishes holiness, which is why he can't, because he is holy. 
In the last few months, I've discovered a pianist called Valentina Lister. She is amazing at the piano. I've seen videos on YouTube where the camera can't record fast enough and her hands become a blur. And on top of that, she's playing a mixture of uh, loud and soft in as well. Because the faster you play, the trickier it is to play softly. And even trickier to play soft and loud as you pick and choose. It is incredible. If I was to ever meet her, the last thing I'd want to do is play the piano in front of her. <laughs> I'd feel inadequate. My best would be laughable in comparison. It's like when a group of annoyingly attractive people at a wedding want to pose for a photo and get you to go in and you're like, no, you, I'll, I'll watch, you take, I'll take the photo, how about that? Or maybe when a wise pastor with decades of experience joins your life group, suddenly you shy away from all the basic unprofound contributions you think you have to offer. The holiness of God is like a bonfire on bonfire night. You can feel the heat from far away. And the closer you get, the more dangerous that heat becomes. It's the fitting description C.S. Lewis gives, he's good, but he's not safe. In Exodus 33, God said to Moses, didn't he? No one can see my face and live. And what happens in the Bible, we've looked at this a little bit this morning already, when people, characters from the Bible, start to get a grasp of his holiness. The tax collector in Luke would not even look up to heaven and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Isaiah sees God's holiness and says, woe, to, woe is me, I am ruined. Job says, my eyes have seen you and I despise myself. When God spoke from the burning bush, Moses hid his face because he was afraid. And today, Joshua hits the deck. This series is called Drawing Near to God, but it should be called Drawing Near to God if you dare. What am I saying then? That God is the undisputed, uh, unrivaled king of the entire universe that rules every aspect of everything. And that as you start to see him, you realise he's holy. And it turns out his holiness would consume you if you went near him. Ergo, we can't go near God and survive. Is that what I am saying? That is exactly what I am saying. Do you think Joshua thought the same thing? I mean, he's got God right there. And he knows he's sinful. He knows what God was able to do by just touching Jacob's hip. But this time, as in verse 13, he's got a drawn sword. So the last thing to talk about then is God's mercy on Joshua. We've seen God's response to Joshua, God's instruction to Joshua, and now God's mercy on Joshua. How does Joshua survive the sword? How can any of us? How can Joshua be right there in his presence? How can we? How can we draw near? Well, you know the answer, don't you? It's because God took the sword on himself. The unbridgeable gap between a holy God and a sinful person is bridged by Jesus Christ. It's because the sin that leads to punishment and death was poured onto Jesus Christ, onto God himself. Jesus, who is actually perfect and actually capable of being in the presence of God the Father, gave himself for us and suddenly, on the cross, had our sin on his shoulders. And the consuming wrath of God came down on him 
and we, the sinful ones, it's as if Jesus' righteousness and perfection is ours, and we can therefore draw near to God. When we understand who God is, his kingship, his holiness, and we start to see that that person, that person who owns everything, that person that is the superlative in the entire cosmos, that person went to the cross for you, went to the cross fully committed to your salvation. There is only one thing to do, isn't there? You bow down and worship, to give him praise, to say, God, I owe you absolutely everything. Joshua was facing a humanly impossible task, wasn't he? The fortified and securely shut up city of Jericho. And what happens? God shows up in the form of a man and delivers his people and the walls fall down. You and me, we face a humanly impossible problem of drawing near to a holy God when we are sinful. And what happened? God shows up in the form of a man and dies for you on the cross and delivers you. He bridges the gap and welcomes you into his glorious kingdom to be with him forever in a place that is perfect. And like him, we will be, he will be with us and we will see his face. In a moment, we're going to be remembering the Lord's table, which is a helpful and vivid reminder that Jesus gave his very body and his very blood to secure our place in God's wonderful presence. We're so quick to forget, but the Lord is holy, the king of the universe, and he gave himself so that even though we are unholy rebels, we can be in his kingdom. So don't resist and don't delay in letting him be king of your life. Joshua asked God, are you for me? And if we ask that question, the cross shows us that he is for you. It shows how much he loves you. It shows what it took God and what he was willing to do to reconcile you and me, a sinful people, to himself. Without the cross, we would never be able to draw near to God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, King in heaven, we come before you as a people saved only by the grace and sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we owe you absolutely everything. And without you, we would not even exist. Help us all not to be foolish and idolatrous, Lord, but to have you in the only place you belong, which is as a loving king ruling over all of our lives. Amen. <laughs>